Ming Cho Lee spoke with union members and guests at an SDCF symposium event in April of 1999. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. I actually uh, am, have the privilege of introducing Ming Cho Lee, and, and anybody who has to introduce Ming Cho Lee is also <coughs> introducing uh, the, the Great Pyramids or... Uh, <laughs> So he really needs no introduction, so I just get to, to praise Ming for what he is and, and his influence. And I have to say that I think that Ming probably, I'm not exaggerating when I say that he has to be the greatest design influence in the latter part of the 19th century and obviously going into the 21st century. Uh, um, and it's a direct, a direct lineage. <laughs> Repeat that in a minute. Uh, and a direct lineage back to Joe Meltziner, Robert Edmund Jones, uh, Gordon Craig. I mean, there's a direct line here of, of great design. And he has influenced more young designers and more designers working in the field, I think, than anyone living, certainly today. And, and as a part of the mentoring of this, that means that a lot of people emulate Ming and a lot of people reject Ming as well. That's the mark of a great teacher, someone who elicits both of those responses uh, in a student. So we've asked Ming to come and talk about what Ming does, uh, what he does with directors specifically, and what he does with directors when working on the classics. Ming Cho Lee. I think all of you, I think you said it too soon because this last session may be a mess. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was really surprised that I'm going to be all by my lonesome self <laughs> because I, I thought we were going to have a dialogue and we were trying to have a dialogue with this, this, this. And now I've discovered that I'm by myself. And uh, boy, I guess we should all go home. <laughs> uh, and of all things, uh, you know, all of your directors, and directors are the boss. For designers, directors are the boss. You are the leaders. I mean, that doesn't mean you're a dictator, but you are the leaders. And so, uh, as far as designers are concerned, uh, uh, if a designer thinks that he or she is going to win, <laughs> they are wrong. <laughs> you never win with a director, and you shouldn't. You really shouldn't. So, I feel a little bit kind of a nervous that I'm facing all the bosses here, the future <laughs> bosses and so forth. Um, I have a feeling we, we're trying to get first, we're going to have a dialogue. This person was not available, that person not available, and then we said, let's put together a panel of designers, and of course, everyone is busy except me. <laughs> That shows you where I'm, where I'm standing right now. And, uh, and so, here I am. And, uh, well, uh, how, how should I, I mean, you know, uh, this, is, this is strange, so I'm winging it. Uh, where shall I begin? Uh, first of all, I, I would say that uh, I would go anywhere to do Shakespeare. I wouldn't give up doing Shakespeare even if you do it in the room, which may be the best Shakespeare. Who knows? Uh, I think that was, despite the fact that it was quite male and 300 years ago, 400 years ago, that I'm constantly amazed by, aside from being great writer, the kind of humanism that inform all his plays. That you work on his plays and you realize that 
all the human issues, and depth of human perception and emotion, problems, passion, celebrations, joy, you name it. And it's all in its place. It plays, and it's bottomless. It's like, and you work on the play, and you say, you know, work on the film, and say, wow, that is a great play. My God, I've discovered so many things. And then you work on comedy and errors, you say, you know, that is truly a funny play. And then, <laughs> and then you, you, you work on this, and there isn't really a bad play. Even Thailand acting. <laughs> My book directed it. It's, it's turgid and it's kind of difficult, but it's a very, very important play. It covered human issues like not to be believed. So, first of all, I would go anywhere to do Shakespeare, uh, as long as I don't lose my shirt. Uh, and at my age, uh, uh, if I have to travel, uh, I do have to travel first class. something maybe a problem if any of you want to offer me a job so that I can't be here to talk to you. Uh, um, I do often I have to not be at the theater on Wednesday because I teach Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday. And Wednesday is a, is a day that I loathe to miss. Saturday is the day that I will not miss again. And at one point, I even, I was doing Tales of Hoffman in Hong Kong, and it happened to be a rather serious day in New Haven. That's my first year class. And at that moment of probably madness, uh, I flew from Hong Kong, and you know, you have a daylight, the daylight, international daylight. I, I flew from Hong Kong on Friday, arriving in New York on Friday, went to New Haven to teach, and uh, caught the plane. Uh, if you fly airlines that leave in the middle of the night, uh, caught a plane back to Hong Kong and started working on Monday. And, uh, and I do that. I mean, that's an exception, but I prefer to do that. Now, why is Monday class so very important? That's my first year class. And Kaya, if she is here or not, will tell you that, that, that I learn more about theater and people and ideas from my first year class. And that's because my first year class include directing, directing students. I will not teach design without directors. It's deadly just to talk about design. And it's important to talk about the play and have points of view, have opinions, have like and dislike. And, and designers, uh, many of them are not very verbal. And you have to kind of push them to actually talk about the work, talk about other people's work, talk about their work, and with directors, the Kai, you will be surprised that I did have a directing class who were very quiet. So quiet that designer had to speak. It may, it, it may be a good thing, but boy, that, that was tough. That was really tough. And I now realize that even though I'm not a director, that teaching first-year design is to teach designers to think like directors. Otherwise, there is no way for designers to work with a director. And, 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 and in order to design, you really have to hear the play. And in order to hear the play, you really have to think who are speaking it, and what's going on, and what's the action. 
And, uh, and I learned something from John Hirsch, who came to Yale to have special projects and so forth. And he was the person who said, I would prefer when I face with young directing students and so forth, that I, I would like to see how they would cast the show. 50% of directing is casting. And so he instituted this thing called the Portrait Gallery. And I said, boy, that's a good idea. Uh, first of all, I don't want directors to be designers. Senseless. I want to have terrific, exciting directors. And therefore, uh, for all my students now, designers, directors, stage managers, technical students, occasionally a playwright take my class, occasionally an actor take my class, the more the merrier. Occasionally architects take my class, the painters from School of Arts take my class. Uh, and they all have to come in with a portrait gallery. And we generally, Michael Jurgen and I co-teach the class, and we tend to discourage paintings. We really just want photographs. And it's actually an art in, in getting together a portrait gallery. A lot of people begin to say, well, you know, I see this picture, and the eyes are so intense, and therefore, that's Medea. And, uh, and, and, and by just looking at the eyes, the personage gets lost. You lose the person. So quite often, uh, a picture that is having this emotional outburst may not be the right picture for the portrait gallery. And uh, we go through portrait gallery, and that actually in some way is very interesting is because then we came to the design. We said, well, your design has nothing to do with your portrait gallery. So what kind of choices are you making? And that is so exciting that when I miss a Saturday class, I feel I'm deprived. And therefore, I will go anywhere, do anything not to miss Saturday class. And, and for me, uh, uh, I learned a great deal from Kaya and so forth, with arguments and all kinds of things. But I think in some way, uh, it forced the directing students and the designers to start talking about, about play as if, as if they're writing a turntable. They're writing about the theme, they're writing about meaning, they're writing about uh, the moral, they're writing about uh, uh, how does it uh, tell a tale moral message and so forth. And more and more, as I learned from teaching from Saturday class, is the fact that a meaning or whatever thing of the play is revealed through actions. And, and I wonder if I'm sitting here seeing a show and I'm constantly trying to figure out the meaning of the play. I think probably it's a pretty boring evening. <laughs> I think the exciting thing is, first of all, there is a payoff, which I think is important. How do you want the show, when the show ends, how do you want the audience to feel? Are they laughing on the floor? That's a valid thing. Do they are so stunned that you have a five seconds pause before people stand up? That's bad. Should all people be crying so they can't leave the theater? That's bad. That there is this payoff, there is this tremendous impact, and the next morning you said, you know, Cherry Orchard is about the death of the Russian Empire. whole Russian revolution is right there because you have all these people who are totally inactive. Now, that's not just the issue of cherry watching, but, but that should actually come came the next morning. 
Then two hours later, he said, boy, you know, that really reminded me of my family in Nympho someplace. Or you say, wow, you know, right now, you know, even in New York, you look across the street and there are trees and it's blossom. You say, wow, that's how a cherry, cherry orchard look like in the middle of Act One. And all these things come about, but if, if you in the middle, you say, you know, Russia is in deep trouble. I think that 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 would be a, a horrible uh, production of, of cherry orchard, and and many of them indeed were uh, are not very good. It's a difficult play to do, very difficult play to do. So all this, and I, I certainly don't have the answer for any of this, except that. It's a kind of an in exchange and exploring and so forth that I found very, very exciting. And I feel that I seems to have a glimpse of what a design teacher should do dealing with directing students and design students and so forth. Uh, I know I should talk about King Lear. I, I guess let's, let's talk a little bit further. I'm, uh, I had a way of doing Shakespeare that somehow gathered from Michael Langham and Stratford, Ontario and uh, in the early 60s. I was very much a 60s designer. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think I made a big break with the American way of designing Orjo. And, and I would say that uh, before 60s brought Broadway is, now first of all, I would like to just mention the fact that someone's saying that they are trying to get into New York. You know, I don't work in New York. Nobody, you know, with designers, nobody call, and not, uh, as Boris Aronson said, when nobody called, not even the wrong number calls. And no one from New York called me. And, and you want to do theater? It's all over the country. And New York does not necessarily mean that it's the best place to work. There's, there's something screwy about New York. Uh, I think. There is something horrible about Broadway because it is theater for the tourists. And that automatically kind of informed what kind of show you, you, you should do. Meanwhile, all the re-examinations of American classics are all coming from England. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, some people said that, you know, there are a lot of contemporary playwrights who write, and I'm actually getting a little bit tired of it, if you have maybe two or three main characters. Then you have one person who play 20 roles. <laughs> and it became usually a kind of tour de force performance. And some people even made it even more deeper, saying that is really returning to Greek tragedy. You have Greek chorus. You can comment on this comment. I think it's all economics. <laughs> and one person isn't 14 people. And no matter how that person try, the best they can do is an exaggerated stereotypical. So I don't think that's a savior of American theater, simply because we can no longer have 15 people on the stage. I have found that doing Shakespeare at Yale, unless it's a kind of workshop, uh, uh, or let's say Galilee or so forth, is very disturbing because you, 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 and, and I, I must say, it's one reason why I found working in Washington with Michael Kahn in his Shakespeare theater is so exciting because he has a company or working at Ashland or Stratford, Ontario. You see 
30 people on the stage. And the person who is playing passes is not turning up, also playing pass. You know, I mean, all, all, all these things. And there is something exciting to see a stage full of people. Instead of three people and one guy come out and yeah, I mean it, it's challenge for a costume designer, but and, and the actor. But anyway, and 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 uh, so in some way, I think if the work is available and it feels good, do it. To force yourself into New York, when it comes, it comes. And some are good, and some are not so good. You may want to, like all the American singers, go to Europe, go to London, and then come back and you're the star. Uh, uh, who knows? Who knows? But all I'm saying is that at this point in my career, New York just doesn't seem like a viable place for me. And Am I upset about it? Of course I'm upset about it. You don't work in New York, you don't get this hacky award called Tony. But nevertheless, you know, every, you meet everyone says, what are you doing in New York? And, and then I say, oh, well, you know, I'm doing this there, this there, so forth. However, I am having a good time. I'm as busy as I know how to handle. And I'm doing it. A lot of Shakespeare, and I'm working with very, very, very good directors, and uh, I'm doing important plays. I'm doing a lot of O'Neills, and that I have a feeling is where I am, and that's all right. That's truly is all right. Uh, but going back to the sixty and so forth, uh, I started doing Shakespeare by. Much influenced by Stratford, Ontario, Tanya Mozevich, and all that, that essentially I start designing the, the world for the play. And the specifics are very much indicated or articulated by emblems. And often the world is. Total, but nevertheless, very abstract. It's very formalized, and uh, and it's very sculptural. It is uh, very spatial because this is what Shakespeare required. You have platform in the middle of the audience where the actor is the thing, and uh, and I did that, and I think it changed in some way affected American design because it was so different from all the designs on Broadway where you, you have selective realism, you have poetic realism, but nevertheless it's scenery. And I am designing the world for the action of the play. Uh, now, I have a feeling there is still some basis in this approach to Shakespeare. I have a feeling if you try to illustrate everything, you are there. Uh, except that I think I have changed. Uh, in some way I found, lately, I found that the emblematic approach, I don't use the word symbol because I don't know what it means. Uh, the emblem or the icon tends to be so formal that sometimes it's dehumanizing. And also, uh, somehow the choice making gets a little bit too easy. And somehow it doesn't really allow me to live the life of the play. And so my process of doing Shakespeare has changed because I don't think I would know how to begin unless I know when and where I'm placing the play. And I'm also beginning to feel that if you decided to do the fellow or leader in the Middle Age or Renaissance, 
that is as difficult and important a choice as you decided to do Othello in the 60s, 1960s, or Lear at the turn of the century, or 1930s, or 1970s. I think those choices are to do it in the Renaissance of Paul Othello. There must be the same amount of baggages and point of view and the reason that you feel you want to do it in that period as you decided to do it in 1960. And I now also begin to realize that if you want to do Othello, that's because I just did Othello. So, but I, I'll come to Lear at some point. <laughs> if you want to do Othello in Renaissance, or Romeo and Juliet in the Renaissance, then it may be important that you want to start out, especially for a costume designer, to examine costume in the 1960s, to discover why, who are these people and why are they immediate. That you know those people and then let that inform the clothes that should be that would be in Renaissance. So it just doesn't become costume drama. And I swear, if you want to do Romeo and Juliet in 1960s, you better deal, you better start out examining it in the Renaissance. I I swear you are going to have a hard time designing the servants. And the show began with Samson and Gregory. And the servants wear the same clothes as the masters today. So you may want to figure out how do these servants look like in the Renaissance and what do they do? Do they clean people who clean up the garbage? Or Samson maybe a chauffeur? Who knows? And so now, I feel that even in designing sets, I would love to just do a quick rough thing, knowing that we are going to do it in Renaissance, do it in the contemporary, and then do it so it is a process of examination. And I didn't do that in the 60s. Also, I'm somewhat affected by postmodern. I came to it somewhat late. Other people are doing postmodern. I don't understand what it means, <laughs> but but now I'm pretty good at it. I mean, I, I can do a realistic wall and paint it bright red, or or or, or have a, a, a green floor and a sky and put an opening in the middle and saying that it's eclectic and it's 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 inclusive, it's exterior, interior, it's all together. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. And I have been doing it a lot, and now I'm abandoning it because, because in some way there is always that edge. It's like everyone is acting in front of a bathhouse. And, 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 and somehow that's not very humanizing. You know, you, you, don't, you don't shed tears in front of a bathhouse, you know, and, 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 or go crazy or whatever. So now I'm, trying to do The Merchant of Venice that actually has more elements than I have ever dreamed of and I'm having a terrible time and I, instead of neutral color I'm having gold and black and green and it's driving me crazy I wonder why I'm here but nevertheless <laughs> and I'm changing and I'm doing a lot of Shakespeare thank God because of Michael and, uh, and also Ashlyn Borgen and uh, uh, and for a while with Brian Bitter that strapped in Ontario, and then suddenly I become an O'Neill expert. I'm doing Long Day's Journey, Touch of Poet, and uh, and that's rich. That is very very rich. So in some way, the way I'm working, the way I started out working, I have changed. And I guess the moral is that I think 
you cannot get stuck at one place. Because theater is really only meaningful when it's informed by your life experience. But what is also exciting in doing Shakespeare is that Shakespeare somehow informed is becoming part of your life experience because it is so rich that you are getting a piece of Shakespeare in every of his of his plays, and you get to know a lot more people that you would never get to know in no matter how glad-handed you are. And uh, and it's the reservoir that is endless. That is endless. Now, I did Lear, uh, believe it or not, in 1962, when Frank Silvera played Lear, and Betsy Kennedy played Gonroe, and Eddie Miller played uh, Cordelia. I think it was a wretched set that I designed in 1962, you know, boy. Uh, a lot of, lot of pillars. God help us to do that. And then I, I did a year uh, that was adapted from a set that I designed for, uh, for Actors Theater, for John Houseman. Uh Oh, I did Mother Courage for Actors Theatre, and that was a good Mother Courage. And then they said, let's do a Lear on the same set, because it looks kind of gray. And, and that was not so good. And unlike, uh, 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 actually, like Tempest and many other Othello and all that, I, I have not done a Lear recently. We did a lot of projects of Lear in the in the in the first year class, but I saw Libby Apple's Lear at Ashland, Oregon, when I was doing Death of a Salesman. Now that is very interesting artistic directing mm -hmm. that should put Salesman and Lear mm. in red, mm. and you can see. Old plays over a weekend, sometime matinee and evening. Now that is a heavy day. <laughs> but boy, there is nothing like one play informed the other. And it is about old age. Now that's not the only issue of you. But to see two old people, <coughs> one somehow decided that he wants all the perks and no responsibility, and there is a consequence. And another person who simply at age 60, which is kind of frightening because I'm 68, and Loman, Willie Loman was 60, and he could not cope anymore. And that was frightening. And to see actually two productions, a very, very, very good year and a very, very good salesman is like a lifetime worth of experience. And I thought Libby did a wonderful year. And it's very eclectic. And it started out actually in tux. And there was something that was very interesting, and I never... Uh, it certainly surprised me because at that point, despite in the first year class where we start with Lear in the hospital bed and it's all from the first, first person point of view, and then of course it gets stuck with what happened to Gloucester and so forth, where well, Lear is not around, and, and all that. But I mean, there are zillions of Lear that in the class that we have gone through. But this one was interesting that. Uh, 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 the first scene, and she just had a red bridewear curtain and a roll of seats, just like here. And everyone except the fool is on the stage. And, and a whole bunch of very contemporary lights. As you know, this is postmodern approach. And uh, 
Well, it was interesting because, and that was kind of startling because Gloucester uh, 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 was sitting here, Edmund was sitting here, and Kent was sitting here, and they went around Edmund and saying, "What do you think what the king is going to do?" And they chat and say, "Oh, by the way, who is this?" They say, "Oh, this is." Son, blah blah blah. Oh, say hello to Ken. You should remember him. And somehow it set up a state of affairs that was unbelievable. That here is the non-person sitting right there. Then, of course, you were expected. The year got mad. Blah blah blah. And everyone was up on the chair and was shocked. And Lear got so mad that he went up. He knocked down all the chairs. And so the scene between the three daughters happened in the midst of the breeze of chairs. Then another surprise: the rest of the show, uh, before Lear went into the wilderness and start with. Low wind and cracking your cheek.、Uh, it was three big black doors, very ornate doors, and that's it. And some trap, so that occasionally Edmund will come through a trap. Now that was good because it seems that, and I never realized it. You know, I, I always. Being a sixty person, I always want to fit the play into one world, and with Lear, that's hard because at the beginning you want a lot of things in order to come to a point when Lear has nothing. If you start out with nothing, then what does nothing means? And there, it was a lot of things, and then the three doors of people come through, and so forth. And then, when finally the storm happened after a break, and we still have the three doors, and it kind of moved away, so forth. And we were in this big gray room, completely gray, with a little door with a staircase coming down. And I thought I was in the midst of a Samuel Beckett play, and that's how it ended. And I thought it was a terrific approach, terrific approach. And I don't think they would have arrived. I'm not saying that's the only way to do this, but it certainly impressed me. But I think there were a lot of. Difficult choices that they have made in terms of who they are, when you want the scene to happen, and when it's nothing, what's the baggages? What's the relationship between Samuel Beckett and Shakespeare, and and the wasteland, and and so forth, and、uh, so that was the year that was in my memory etched. I don't. There are images. There are moments that I would actually never forget.、Uh, and I think that if you want to do Lear, you, you probably should have a strong point of view, and you want to have a sense as to what you really want to. What are the parts that really speak to you? And I guess everyone, you know, Scott and Michael and Roger, say have a point of view. Big deal. All you do is make a mistake. Big deal. <laughs> and don't try to, you know, you you will never do a definitive leer. One at one point, one time, that's impossible. If you had done the definitive leer at age thirty, what are you going to do with the rest of your forty years? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it just, I mean, it it it's unthinkable. Unthinkable. And I remember that I did a horrible campus in the park in 1962. Again, 
That's because I didn't understand it. I was having a terrible time reading Shakespeare. And I was stuck with Brechtian production. And I was trying to force Tempest into a Brechtian production and drove Jerry Freeman absolutely up a wall. <laughs> and uh, on the other hand, when I did my second Tempest, uh, John Hirsch directed, and by then, at least I have kind of a not so great insight, but nevertheless, a point of view, I said, oh, Tempest is Shakespeare's magic flute. Bad idea. But nevertheless, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I now learn that, my God, talk about Tempest. I mean, that is like the bottomless ocean that you can never exhaust. And, uh, and, and in terms of Lear, uh, uh, there are moments that I never forget. And I have a feeling, in a way, uh, uh, at least I tell my students, say that you've got to discover in the play, and you've got to live the life. And you discover moments of the play that so move you that you will not anything to get in the way. And I have always found that the scene between Betty Miller and Frank Silveras here in Cordelia, the, re the reunion scene when when Lear said, gee, I'm not in my right mind, but I think you're my daughter, Cordelia. And Cordelia said, so I am, so I am. And I remember I could not stop crying. And then when I saw Paul Schofield's Lear and with Irene Worth and all those great, great actors, and, and, and in some way, uh, Schofield did things that Frank Silvera in the park would never be able to do, just in terms of scale of the place and outdoor and so forth. But the scene between Schofield and Cordelia was well played, very cold. So how do you deal with that? And. Uh, and that is also a point of view. There are moments in the play that you make sure that nothing gets in the way. Same as uh, 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 the fact that Miranda and Ferdinand were chess and came out and here are all these horrible people from Ireland. And Miranda said, oh, what beauteous people, oh, brave new world, and I will not let someone take something from his pocket or something and destroy that moment. And, uh, and I have now discovered, unlike in the 60s, that I keep asking, well, what's the visual imagery? What is, what do you think is the material of the play. I wouldn't even ask that. I mean, I would be embarrassed to ask that question nowadays. That I have found today that I'll simply, after the talk, I'll simply try to design as many versions. If I find that something worked, I'll put it in the little rough one-eighth inch model. And when that feels good, I say, well, what if I turn it around? And I tend to go to the director after the first talk, with two or three different versions. And I found that it really get the juice going. And there is something exciting about that. And, and, uh, and then I lose my train of thought. So, <laughs> <laughs> so all of you should have questions. Yes. Yes. Um, what, what you most from the director of that first meeting. Could you just please, uh, not just what you could, maybe you could. And the thing that 
frighten me most is to advise a production at Yale. And it is a third-year director's thesis production. And the poor person has been planning the goddamn thing <laughs> since March, April, May, June, July, and by the time it came to September, it happened to be a show at the end of in, in that, in the following year, April. This person had thought this thing out to such end degree, and yet is afraid to tell the designer saying, I have thought it all, I, all I want you to do is this. this, this. <laughs> Afraid of saying, oh, well, you know, that's not collaboration, blah, blah, blah. And, and I have to tell you, there's so much talk that it boggles the mind. I mean, it, it, and I just get dizzy. I mean, first I, I refuse to sit in on that talk, and then when they come back and they start talking, and I mean, it takes whole day, and I somehow couldn't get to it. Uh, and I kept saying, guys, I said, everyone is busy. You should behave like Sir Peter Hall. You have something going on in Grimeborn the next day. You're flying out, and all you have is two hours. And just go for it. And, and, and that's the truth. Directors don't have time, designers don't have time. And a lot of times, sometimes it's not a good thing. For me, and this I essentially quote from Father Wright. Father Wright once said that theater is really an act of transformation. That all you have at the beginning are words. And it's a very incomplete form of narrative. Only dialogue. It's not like a novel or even a short story. So, a director collaborating with designers transform words into visual imagery, transform words into the world, the place where the action takes place, transform words into living people so immediate that you know what's in that person's wardrobe, in that costume, that's clothes, and then you work with actors and you transform words into a living human being engaged in this human Therefore, more words isn't going to do it. It's not going to do it. And I get very nervous when the designer has pages and pages writing. That ain't going to get that person anywhere until he or she starts drawing. That their writing doesn't get you anywhere, and you can't look at it and make any kind of Evaluation. So, the best kind is we talk about whatever that comes to mind about the play. And if a director said, you know, I really know what I want to do, say so. Why go through the charades? <laughs> because nobody will ever get it right. And there is nothing wrong with saying, I want to do this thing in an army camp. Great, let's do it in an army camp. There are many different kinds of army camps. And after you've done army camp, you say, gee, perhaps it's done in the Pentagon. But I think the best time is that it is about revealing oneself about why we're doing the play. Well, the job is awful. That's the very good reason, you know. <laughs> but why do it now? Why do I accept doing it? Because 
I think I have something to say about it, or the play says something about me, or the world. And if someone said, you know, we are doing Romeo and Juliet, you know, if there is no balcony, we are in trouble. Mind you, Joe Pat tried to do a Romeo and Juliet without the balcony, and I will never try that ever again, because it is just stupid. I mean, you know. uh, but anyway, so I think there should be a really frank exchange. And I would say that if the director kind of a, is not quite ready to make choices or whatever, that's all right too. But I think it's up to the designer at some point saying, well, when do you really want to set this here? And a lot of directors are going to say, do we have to talk about the period? Can there be no period? Now, uh, uh, that tends to drive designers a little bit. <laughs> because we tend to have trouble understanding what do you mean by no period. It means a lot of periods. Then you might as well, I'm doing the eclectic. Then it's a free fall. Well, so let's try free fall. <laughs> but no period is difficult because what people wear actually inform the society and their behavior. So we say, well, you know, uh, you know, I'll just figure it out. But then, so in some way, then for me now, if that's the case, then I'm going to design many periods. I may approach the 12th night in Hyannis, 1960, <laughs> Then I'm going to do it in the 20s. And I'm going to do it in the turn of the century. And I'm going to uh, do it in the Renaissance. And then see how it can match and mix and match. Mix and match. But I don't think you can arrive at a note or eclectic approach in one stroke. In fact, I don't believe that you can really arrive at it in one stroke. You have to, because if you design a 12th night or year in many periods, uh, you destroy the connecting tissue between the people. So you may have to say, Director, don't worry, I'm not going to stick you with Kennedy household for 12th night, but at least let's go through it. So we know who, who Rose Kennedy is in the whole great scheme of things. Then I'm going to do it 20 and do it like Great Gatsby. See what happens. Then go for it at the turn of the century. Do an 18th century. Which means for a designer, you have to be quick with your pens. And drawing and putting roughs no presentation, just putting rubs, putting ideas down as clearly, as expressively as possible, so that the designer himself or herself can take a look and say, does it really work? What's in my mind's eyes? Does it really work? And there is something exciting for a designer to go through a cut and you and if you do it often you can actually feel it. You have an idea here, it comes through your hands on a pencil on a piece of paper, you look at it and it informs your eyes, and therefore your eyes through your mind. And that thing, it's almost like playing tennis. You feel this thing come right here and whammo here is the space. So so uh, so it's that kind of a process. And uh, but even then, I think a designer is responsible for asking the question in order for the designers to be able to go up the Now, then I feel, and that 
captain of the hill that nobody wants to leave anyone alone. The designer has a question on the phone with the director. The director keeps on how are you doing? You know? <laughs> and uh, I would like to have at least 10 days that nobody <laughs> and I will make sure that in the second meeting, not only I research or whatever, that I have made a staff, if not many staffs, at the, at the play with that has that is in the context that has something gone through me so that I'm not just showing a lot of research that the research has a context. And then, uh, 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 and everyone has something to look at. And then, through that, create further dialogue. We're going to have yes. to end, end up. I was just wondering if we could, uh, we're about out of time. There is another question. Take one more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, if they want to stay, I'll stay. <laughs> okay.
that somehow the whole audience was sitting there with their mouth open to realize that what they were doing to each other. And meanwhile, that kind of brutality happens all the time. And it's like hitting you right in the guts. And I would say, well, is that the top one? Because that, I feel, if I'm doing Titus Andronicus, I would like that to be the payoff. So now we have things to talk about. Well, uh, why don't we continue this discussion more privately? If you want to hang around, people can talk well, to you. Well, that's not hang around. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate so much for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Go out and create art. <laughs> Again, this is Susan Stroman, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage, made possible through support from Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the National Theatrical Union celebrating five decades of uniting, empowering, and protecting professional stage directors and choreographers. Visit us online at sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.